are live, Chris Denman, proud to have Billy Corbin, director of the new film, Screwball, back on the show. We love Billy in St. Louis. We love all the movies in the past, man. And we're, we're so excited about this new one as it, uh, we feel a little bit close to baseball and steroids, my friend. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks for having me, Chris. We've got we've got highways named after a guy who refused to talk about the past here. So uh, the new uh, <laughs> the new comedy documentary Screwball. Um, I've seen you pushing it everywhere. It's, Rolling Stone did a great write up. You've done all the big podcasts, man. It's so good to see you attacking something uh, like this and in a very unique manner. We've got to get into everything that led you to making the choice to make the movie how you did it, who all was involved. I guess the best place to start, Billy, for Screwball, what motivated this other than Florida never stops providing you with the best stories to tell? Well, I mean, this was the, one of the most Miami stories of all of the Miami stories we've ever told, I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying a lot. To say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, everybody knows about it, of course, because it netted A-Rod, you know, and, and yeah. of course – uh, myriad other high-profile players um, were involved as well, but obviously he was the he was the marquee name uh, in the biogenesis scandal when it broke in 2013. But what I think people don't necessarily know um, is that Alex was really just collateral damage in this scandal, and and what it what it comes down to is that the career of the highest-paid baseball player in history effectively ended over a $4,000 debt between a cocaine-addicted fake doctor and his fake tan-addicted steroid patient. And I think that's what really attracted us to it. Once we understood what this was really all about and how irreverent and Floridiana and only in Miami <laughs> that it was, I think we, we, we were that much more enthusiastic about taking it on. And you all can get Screwball. Again, it's on Prime Video right now. You can get it there. Billy, what's the best place for people to watch this, by the way? Oh, yeah, any place online you go, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, but Microsoft, Voodoo, Redbox. It's a whole bunch of uh, streaming services. You can get it <laughs> uh, on demand. That's so great. And it's, you know it's going to be quality because uh, of all the work you've done in the past and then this content so interesting. So back to – Starting in Florida over a four thousand dollar debt, so this this literally got broke open because of ego and or someone just saying, "Hey, let's blow it all up. Who cares?" Or did they did the people that made it public over that four thousand dollars could they have ever even envisioned that it would, I guess, snowball to the lengths that it did in regards to the media splash it made? Um, I it wasn't intentional meaning that when uh, the whistleblower in the case, Porter Fisher, when he stole the documents, um, right. really, like I said, in this tiff over a $4,000 debt that was owed to him by the, the fake doctor and proprietor uh, of Biogenesis, uh, which was this, the steroid clinic, um, mm -hmm. he was really doing it you know, as this kind of personal – act of revenge and, and possibly even holding them in exchange for the money. It's kind of unclear precisely what his, what his motives were, but it, it, what is clear is that he didn't necessarily comprehend the weight of what he had uh, immediately. Like he didn't sort of that, understand all of the names that were in there and what, what the damage this could do. 
Right. And that, man, that's so crazy, too, that you can have someone lightly involved like A-Rod and then the links that things can go. I mean, he was considered an all-time great. And, I mean, still his his career was a, a, nice, a very nice career, but he's looked at much differently um, as a player now. And then to have it just go that way, I couldn't think of a better person to <laughs> to document it than yourself and the team at Rack and Tour. So that's very interesting to me. So with this, you you, you mentioned uh, the whistleblower Porter Fisher. He is played by a truly young man by the name of Frankie Diaz. Other names like Brian Blanco, Jonathan Blanco, Jake Alexander Martin, Ian Mackles, Blake McCall, all are names that you all don't know because they're child actors playing <laughs> the roles of these wild, just crazy men in this really unique way that you told the story. You describe it as a drama, comedy, and then it invokes uh, even some Coen Brothers influence. Can you give me a little bit of insight into who came up with this thought process and then who greenlights that? Because, again, I know you work for yourself, but I'm sure somebody's got say financially or something. What makes you think a bunch of kids playing steroid users and sellers is going to be a hit for your world? <laughs> yeah, this is it's less A-Rod and, and more uh, Elmore Leonard uh, or, or, or Carl Hyacin. In, in, in much the same way you changed the name of that highway to Mark Twain uh, from, from, from Mark McGuire. Um, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's not about baseball. It's, it's about literature, you know. And yes. so um, it, it, this story was so bizarre and so irreverent and so illogical. I mean, it's just – it's a farce. That's why we called it screwball. You know, it was just yeah. such a – a farcical tale, and all of the the adults in the story acted like like children. Um, and you know, we had a unique challenge here with this documentary, and that like when we do other stuff like at sports docs, like the U for the ESPN Thirty for Thirty yeah. Series, for example. You know, you interview football players, they talk to you about football, you go get football games, and you put that footage on top of the interviews. It's a it's a pretty straightforward process. Um, right. Here, this isn't about baseball. Yes, yeah, it's sports adjacent, but people only mention, I think, two or three different games, you know, ever come up even in the in the interviews. So, right. what do you do to support your interviews, your talking heads? Uh, you need B-roll, you need footage to cut to, to make it uh, aesthetically pleasing and, and entertaining and, and dramatic for the audience. So, we knew we were going to have to do reenactments or recreations. And so, uh, we decided to just do it in a creative way, reenact these events that happened in hotels and nightclubs <laughs> and bars and locker rooms and shady clinics with fake doctors, and we did it with actors who are lip-syncing, drunk history style, the yeah. interview subject's dialogue, and only the actors are, as you observed, eight, nine, and ten years old. <laughs> but I should point out that they're all realistically costumed, you know, with with tattoos yes. and facial hair and wigs and lab coats and police uniforms and pinstripes and, and the works. Everybody uh, everybody very much looks the part but is only, you know, barely, barely double digits in age. That's uh, it's, it's so creative and it's so Billy Corbin of you to make that happen. I love it. And I, I love the style that you go I'm with. an adverb now. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> That's, I think that's your highest achievement, that and <laughs> Miami, right? Oh, God, never. Never, ever. Thank you, though. <laughs> you can't do that. 
No, and uh, a big shout-out as well. Uh, my co-host, Travis Terrell, is running around today, wasn't able to be part of the interview. We always love having you on, and he's uh, he wishes you the best. And it's uh, it's it's really – he just wanted to express, like, thank you for coming on, and, and he loves the uh, the continued work as well. I can't forget to say that. Well, I'm sorry I missed him today. Yeah, it's a, it's a real shame. <laughs> but, I, hey, more for me. So, okay, so when you're <laughs> when you're working on a project like this, the – so let's give some people some behind the scenes. And if it's just you know your way around things because you've been doing it for, you know, the better part of 20 years almost, if you're if you're talking about doing a documentary or a dramedy, however we want to put it, right, talking about real events with sensitive subjects, big-time entities that can be, I'm sure, plenty litigious, how do you cover your ass in this situation um, making sure that you, A, provide something super entertaining, which you're always great at, and then, B, keep things accurate and accurate enough um, while still writing that line to keep people interested to where no one can come after you in a legal sense because you, you have a very unique way of making your films. Yeah, it's a good question because uh, we're obviously dealing with moneyed and litigious interests in this uh, documentary, particularly in, in Major League Baseball and and Alex Rodriguez, both of whom uh, spent untold millions of dollars when this scandal broke trying to nail the other, you know. And so mm -hmm. um, in retelling that story, um, the best way to keep, uh, you know, your hands clean and the best way to keep yourself out of trouble is to just tell the truth, is to ensure yeah. that you have the facts on your side. And I will tell you that in the nearly 20 years that my producing partners and I have been making documentaries, uh, despite the fact that this is a, a comedy, uh, that it is a farce, that it is totally absurd and unbelievable, it is the most meticulously researched documentary that we've ever done. Um, we, we, we knew we had wow. to be extra careful because of the absurdity of it. You know, you, yeah. you had to be able to assure the audience that, that all of this ridiculousness actually occurred. Um, so we we vetted this on an unprecedented level. We obtained documents that had never been released publicly, some of which were sworn testimony uh, that we were able to wow. cross-reference the information from the, new, the the previously published news reports that we that we used, as well as the uh, interview uh, you know the interviews that we had obtained ourselves, uh, and were able to confirm virtually everything that's in. Uh, the documentary that that we felt we required that level uh, of vetting, and so we went line by line through it um, and and cross referenced it with, like I said, previously published and unpublished uh, reports, sworn testimony wow. um, that, that verified the information, and which in a oddly <laughs> it, it makes the whole thing even more unbelievable because if you wrote this, if you were a, a novelist or a screenwriter, yeah. and you turned this manuscript in you would be fired on page 15 because right? it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make the story doesn't make sense. The character motivations don't make sense. Like the whole thing is just so illogical uh, that, that you would just, they would like, they would fire you. They'd say, well, this is unrealistic and unbelievable. Your characters don't make sense. Your story's dumb. You're fired. And, but the thing is, this all happened and, and, and that, that was it for, you know, for us too. We still, it's not that we didn't trust our interview subjects. Uh, that we needed to verify everything, but what they were telling us was so ridiculous. You know, <laughs> so like we had, I believe we had it. to be sure. <laughs> we had to be sure it was true, and so we 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 went and we made sure of it. 
Wow. So given all that vetting, given all that work, given your uh, your pedigree at this point, do you still have people take a swing or send that letter that uh, that says, hey, I don't appreciate this and we're coming after you, or just something? Do you still get any pushback or do people uh, more or less know better? Well, you know, like I said, when the truth is, is on our side, I'm sure if they if they could nitpick at something, uh, they right. would. But the truth is, is that we were, like I said, totally meticulous on That's this. That's amazing. So I, I, yeah, so I think they should just, you know, they, they probably should just say, well, listen, it's all, it's all true. <laughs> so what are we going to, what exactly? Don't waste your time. Push back, you're not going to push back against uh, the truth. What you'd actually wind up doing is probably bringing more attention to it, you know, than they call right. the, uh, the, the strike stand effect is what they call it, you know? Like, they uh, do. That's yeah. what they do. Like De- Devin Nunez cow. Nobody knew what the hell that was until he sued about it, you know? So like <laughs> then it went from like 500 followers to 500,000 followers. Oh like, my gosh. So, yeah. So it's, you're, you're probably, you're, and listen, it, the head in the sand approach has worked pretty effectively for A-Rod. If you think about it, yeah. you know, like he, has- he never really did a mea culpa tour. He never really came out and acknowledged the extent of, of, of his uh, wrongdoing. And, he turned out, it turned out just fine for him. So it almost, I feel like he, he's employing a relatively similar strategy, which is, which is kind of ignore it. But then he started to, to I will tell you this, <laughs> the, the day after our trailer came out, the day after the screwball trailer hit the web, mm-hmm. uh, he proposed to JLo. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying, I'm just saying, uh-huh. I'm not saying anything. Yeah. I'm just, yep. I'm just You're saying out stating facts. The, the week the week we came out, the week Screwball came out um uh theatrically, uh A Rod did this like cover story in New York Times magazine. Um mm-hmm. where where he addresses all sorts of of things somewhat disingenuously. Uh at the same time our our talk came out. So they they seem to be kind of uh, you know, addressing it around us, you know, rather than rather than uh, taking it head on. Right. And that's, you know what? More power to them. Right. If they can work around it. Yeah, that's fine. Listen, if that's, that's... This strategy, this PR strategy, I think, is one of the most successful and greatest in the history of image rehabilitations. And so I think that they will be studying what A-Rod did to to come back, so to speak. Um, in in PR classes in universities. I mean, it's it's a remarkable I agree. Uh, case study. So there's no reason they shouldn't stick to the same winning formula. Yeah, and that's and that's crazy too because and maybe I'm I'm not close enough. I don't know what the there's always like the the local city perspective of you know the local person since he's from there. There's always that like I hear different things about Nelly and Ozzy Smith than you do, right? There's right. that. There's sure. that, but. Um, at the same time, the national perspective, even when he was doing his best, and I don't know that it was ever fair, and maybe behind the scenes it was different, that's such a good point to make because A-Rod was never anybody's like, oh, he's a good dude. He did this, and maybe he he did some charity stuff or something. But general perception was, eh, kind of a, a D-bag, you know. There's kind of, I don't know if it was the, the Red Sox stuff or what, but that was yeah. the perception. And now he gets these jobs that are usually kind of reserved for – Sweetie pies, right? Like, yeah, guys like a, do that. Yeah, so. he went from listen, li- America, American life 
you know, our politics, our sports, everything has become the WWE now. You know, yeah, and very good he, was, he, he was great as the heel, and now we love him as the baby face. You know, it's, it's, yeah. that's a great, great storyline of wrestling. You know, it's like, you, you know, when you, you have the guy who was the villain, and now he's, the, you know, the hero, from the heel to the hero. And so we love that storyline. And when, when Bud Selig was the Vince McMahon of, the, of, the, of Major League Baseball, they needed him as the heel, you know, because he needed to prove that he right. did something once and for all about steroids in baseball. So the storyline was he was going after the biggest scalp in the game, which was Alex Rodriguez. And then he retires, and yeah. uh, Rob Manfred becomes the, the Vince McMahon of, of baseball. And he says, well, what's the new storyline to keep people watching this boring sport? And so they, 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 they make the heel a babyface, and, and now everybody's – I mean, we're through the looking glass here. I mean, whoever thought we live in a world where everybody loves A-Rod and hates Jeter. I mean, what the hell? How, when did that happen? What happened? <laughs> right. Crazy. Right? It's crazy. That's an, yeah, it really is. And it's, it's something that, uh, who knows? Maybe there'll be something to uncover for you to do a, uh, uh, a, 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 a Jeter Marlins, a Jeter Miami Marlins documentary. Huh? That, that could get dirty real quick. <laughs> I, uh, I do, uh, I do have to ask, since I've got you on the line, how, what's your fractured municipality update in, uh, in Miami? Oh. How, how are you? We're fighting over, in St. Louis, we're fighting over city county unification. Which oh. on on paper would look good if they consolidated the uh, eight million municipalities here, but then you kind of start looking at it further, and it's like I don't know, might slip into something else. Then you mix in MLS trying to work their way in, and all these other crazy things happening. But I need to know the Miami update, man. How's it going down there? Oh, it's a cluster. It's you know yep. the usual, par for the course. I mean, we have an MLS problem too with uh, David Beckham, of course, uh, the city of <laughs> city of Miami Commission, and now the Fort Lauderdale Commission. This is two counties now are going to oh, bend over for Beckham uh, and give oh, him great. W- literally like whatever he wants. It's insane, and it's a terrible deal, of course, for the taxpayers. But you have the mayor of Miami who is literally in the pocket of Jorge Mas who is David Beckham's partner, who Beckham finally very smartly brought into the deal after several false starts with different locations for his uh, publicly subsidized soccer stadium, which nobody really needs or wants. Um, And so we have that. We also have a battle going on between the state and the county over the Miami-Dade Expressway Authority because we have this, like, this literal highway bandit organization. It's like a racketeer. It's a government-sanctioned racketeering organization that tolls us to death. Like, it literally just sets up these tolls. It's classic taxation without representation. They just toll the death out of working-class people on one of the very few east-west expressways in the entire county. Um, so they basically are holding you hostage they hit you with those sun pass tolls, you know, just like you just drive. You don't even have to stop. You know, you just drive through, and they're literally picking your pocket. And the state wants to oh. to take it over, and the county, of course, everybody wants to steal that money, is what it is. <laughs> what, what's right. Happening. So they all want this, you know, they hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every uh, every year, and so everybody is now they're fighting over. They're fighting over this pot of gold, and we're just stuck in the middle. And, you know, because nobody actually wants to reduce the tolls. Everybody's just like, who gets to control the toll money? So we're like, yeah, screw the Miami-Gate Expressway Authority. But then you look at the new plan that the state has, and it's really not that much better. So you basically got all these corrupt politicians fighting over money that they're stealing from us, 
And it's just, it's just amazing. It's just great. It's madness. We're, we're seeing it here and I laugh about it because, um, you know, <laughs> we'll just jump in. We don't even have to go deep, but just one issue here is everybody's, you know, silver bullet is, uh, marijuana, which would help with, uh, you know, opioid issues, all these things and hopefully bring in tax revenue. But then I can't help but think, okay, yes, I completely agree. I don't even smoke and I'm saying get the stuff here to stop, you know, it's silly that we're, putting people in prison and all this stuff for a, a plant. And then I do think about it and I think, yeah, but are they going to fix potholes and hospitals with that money coming in? Or is it just going to, you know, be siphoned off just like everything else? Right. And I hate that. Well, I hate that I have that attitude. Yeah, it's a shame. Well, listen, Colorado is a really good uh, example of, I think, a, a very successful experiment in democracy with respect to uh, marijuana legalization. And they literally have so much money generated in taxes from marijuana. They have happy, well-paid teachers and happy, well-paid police officers, and they have so much money left over, they're, they're starting to uh, be forced to do tax refunds that they had promised, which they never thought oh, they wow. had. And yeah. they're like, well, wait, do we have to give it back? It's like, yeah, you promised that you'd give it back. So it's like they have more <laughs> revenue than they know what to deal with. And the bottom line is, is that even if you want to set aside the the revenue-generating motive of legalizing pot. I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, which is there's a legitimate civil rights motive for it. Oh, it's, and that's going to get nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you lock up people for for you know over a plant that's that grows out of the earth that is less dangerous than poison ivy? And I'm not a smoker, but I know people who who smoke both recreationally and for uh, medicinal purposes, and I don't think any of them belong in in prison for crying out loud should be deprived life, liberty, or property uh, over this. I mean, especially when you have states uh, like Colorado with really successful uh, right. models for, for legalization. Yeah. Of course. And just think, of, if you just stopped arresting people for it, just think of the money we would save. We'd not only be a freer country <laughs> but, and, yeah. and, put fewer, and put fewer otherwise le- uh, law-abiding citizens uh, in, in prison and breaking up, destroying families over marijuana – um, because those are the only lives that have been destroyed over marijuana, by the way, are the result of the prohibition, not as a result <laughs> of actually ingesting uh, the product. Um, but the truth right. is, is that is that not only would we be freer, we'd, we'd save untold amounts of money on prisons, on courts, on public defenders, on prosecutors, on police. We could just actually focus on real crime. Here's the thing that police and prosecutors and people don't want you to know. Fighting crime, real crime is hard. It's really hard yes. work to solve a murder extremely or, difficult. or a rape. Or it's extremely, or even a, a burglary or a robbery. It's really hard. You know what's easy? A couple of guys getting a hand job at, an, at a day spa. That's easy <laughs> to bust. You know what I mean? You know what's easy to bust? A couple, a couple of a, a kids smoking a joint. That, that's real low-hanging fruit, and they need to feed this beast that we've built of the prison industrial complex. I mean, we, we, we start yelling about land of the free and the home of the brave, we lock up more people in America than any other country in the world, both in, in, in pure numbers and per capita. We are a prison state, and nobody really wants to acknowledge that because there's so many billions of dollars around the law enforcement and uh, justice system uh, economy. But it, it's, it's terrible. It makes America less free. It poisons the relationship that communities have with their with their police, with their government. Um, the war on drugs has been a miserable failure. Everyone, every other country, uh, including the entirety of the United Nations, have acknowledged 
that for crying out loud, and yet we keep right. perpetuating it to, to great detriment to our to our children and to our country and to our society. It's man, eloquently said, and it's it's definitely something that uh, it should eat at us more. And I think I don't know. I like to think that gradually some of these things are going to get cleaned up. But just like everything, when I go back and <laughs> I'm a fan of documentaries, obviously. You go back, and even if you just watch CNN's decades thing, I'm watching the 90s on in a Netflix with CNN, and I think, oh, no, we're still fighting about some of the stuff they were fighting about in the mid to early 90s. Oh, and, and, and listen, and, and, and talk about, you know, the, the parties or, or, or if one party's for it or against it. Bill Clinton did more to imprison more poor, more black people over the war on drugs than any other president before, so the idea that this that this science fiction of the war on drugs was started by uh, Nixon, um, but then perpetuated on, uh, regardless of the party or the president, uh, is is really true. So what we can only hope is that it's generational. Like you said, hopefully, will this generational ignorance and this perpetuation of 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 this uh, horrific uh, uh, science fiction of a war on drugs, will grow out of it, hopefully. Meaning the horrible people who have something vested in it will die, is basically what I mean generationally. That's and, very and then, to the point. Yeah, and, then, and reasonable people, rational people, um, objective people who don't have a stake in private prisons or in locking up poor people or black people for no reason will go, wait, what are we doing? Why don't we take stock here and realize that this is not – a left or right thing or a Republican or Democrat thing. This is an American thing. We talk about being the, being the freest country in the world, and yet we lock up more people over nothing, over nonviolent offenses, victimless crimes. What the hell are we doing? Instead of just perpetuating it, I don't know, out of tradition. Well, we've always done it this way. Why don't we just keep, you know, we, you know, we did that out of tradition too? Slavery. We did that yeah. out of tradition because, well, this is always the way that we've, that we've done it. And eventually you grow up hopefully, as a country, and you say, what are we doing? Okay, it's time to, to put a stop to this to this ignorance and, and this stupidity. Very well said. Billy, you're a generation of talent. How, how the dude, hell did we do this? How do we get here? It got dark. It got dark, dude. The, but you know what's I not need, dark? I need a joint, Screw Chris. Ball. Now I, I'm even smoking. I need a joint now. <laughs> With Man, job whiskey instead. Okay, you can do that. And if you're ever in St. Louis, you got to come by our studios and offices, and uh, we'll have to do it live, man. I can't, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for all the great work you've yeah. done, and, and please come back soon, man. Yeah. I love the work. In the, in the words of Bill O'Reilly, we'll do it live. We'll do it live. We'll, we'll, we'll do it live. That's right. <laughs> Billy Corbin, rackandtour.com slash screwball. You can see all about it. We'll tweet out all the information. Billy, wonderful speaking to you. Keep up the great work, man. Can't wait for the next project. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. We are live, live, live. We are live, live, live. We are live.